the uh, pastor being six days invisible on the seventh day incomprehensible. Uh, I have been uh, invisible for the last uh, three weeks. Um, I have a friend down in California, John Hanneman, that's developed a ministry to uh, young professional men and women in the Silicon Valley. And it was my privilege to go down and spend some time with that group and teach them. Uh, We were for one weekend at that uh, beautiful conference ground in the Santa Cruz Mountains, Mount Hermon. And then I had an opportunity to uh, meet with the elders and staff of the old church with uh, which I served some years ago, spend uh, some time with them teaching, and then Carolyn joined me, and we went to uh, the Monterey Carmel area. This uh, suffering for Jesus is uh, <laughs> takes its toll. And we came back for a few days, and then uh, we went to Estes Park for four days with the Pettingers and the Peltiers and had an opportunity to meet with a group called Caregivers, group of people that are working with uh, ministering couples around the United States and around the world, actually, and uh, just to sit and be instructed and learn from them. It was uh, just a great time. But I'm back, and it's good to be home. This is home. Uh, You're my family. I uh, miss you when I'm gone. Now I'd like to have you turn to Psalm 52, if you would. There is a 2nd century B.C. Jewish work entitled Sirach, uh, or alternately entitled Ecclesiasticus by the church. This is not the canonical book of Ecclesiastes. It's another earlier, uh, later work, 2nd century B.C. It was written by a man named Jesus ben Sirach. And uh, he says this of David. He played with lions as with kids and with bears as with lambs of the flock. In his youth did he not slay a giant and take away reproach from the people. When he lifted up his hand with a sling stone and beat down the boasting of Goliath. For he called upon the Most High Lord and he gave him strength in his right hand to slay a man mighty in war. To exalt the horn of his people. So Israel glorified him for his ten thousand slain and praised him for the blessings of the Lord. And that there was given him a diadem of glory. For he destroyed the enemies on every side and brought to naught the Philistines, his adversaries, break their horn in pieces unto this day. Uh, David is the great hero of Israel. Monumental man, man of epic uh, proportion. Uh, his name occurs over 950 times in the Bible, almost a thousand times, much more than the much revered Moses, who was the founder of the human founder of the Commonwealth of, of Israel. Great hero, a mighty man. Uh, no one like David, uh, save one. But uh, what I've been trying to get across to you in, in the weeks that we've been studying this, this, uh, the writings about this man and his writings is that uh, though he was a man of heroic proportion, he was, as James would say, just, uh, just like us. He was an ordinary man with ordinary feelings and, and emotions. 
He had his uh, banner days and his blue Mondays. He had his nights when he tossed and turned, his days when he, uh, when he paced the floor, had his Maalox moments and his, uh, his Excedrin headaches. He was just like us. And uh, it's, my, it's my strong belief that it's the Psalms, perhaps more than any other, any other portion of the Bible, that, that reveals that, uh, that likeness. His, his poems display ordinary emotions, gut reactions to the circumstances of his life, his pain, his anguish, his tears, his frustration, uh, his rage. It's all right, you know, to feel things. I was raised in a family where we were taught to quell our emotions. About the only, only emotion that was ever permitted was anger. And so we stuffed all of our emotions. I was taught that's the manly thing to do. And unfortunately, there, there are generations of men that have been raised under that, that regimen. We find it hard to express our, our feelings. We don't think of it as, as, as manly. But uh, David, again, is one of the manliest men I know, again, save one. And he was a man of, of titanic emotion. Pours out his heart uh, in, his, in his psalms, his deepest feelings. Uh, David's poems uh, are, to me, his journaling. Uh, he expressed his feelings uh, by writing them down and pouring his, his feelings into the words on, on the page in, in vivid poetic language. I think of uh, poets like Browning, Henry David Thoreau, Robert Service, Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, and others who just pour their pain out onto the page. That's what, that's what David does. The thing, though, that is most significant to me about David's poetry is that it's chiefly prayer. Um, I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Psalms are actually five books. And after the second book of, of the Psalms, which concludes with Psalm 73, there is what scholars call a colophon, a kind of a tagline, a, 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 some indication that the book is terminated. And the line reads, the prayers of David are ended. I don't know if you ever noticed that before, but it's there. The prayers of David are ended. Some of the Psalms start out with David uh, complaining about God. But he always turns to complaining to God. Those are his lament Psalms. In other of his Psalms, he talks about his circumstances, and then he turns to God in his circumstances, almost all of them, with perhaps one exception. David turns into, uh, into prayer. Uh, Psalm 23, for example, is a good illustration of that fact. He begins with the third person singular, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He restores my soul. But then when David goes through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He, he turns to prayer. Uh, David's Psalms teach us to pray. 
our Lord used them that way. You may be aware that the cry of, of dereliction from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, those are David's words, Psalm 22, 1. He's simply praying David's prayer. David is teaching us to pray in the Psalms, to pour out our heart to God. Now, uh, Psalm 52 is exactly that. Uh, in, in many ways, Psalm 52 is, a, is an unremarkable uh, psalm. I, I've never heard a sermon preached on this psalm. It's largely overlooked. Even the commentators seem to give it short shrift. But as I have pondered this psalm, read it over and over and over again, thought about it over the last weeks, it's come to my mind that this psalm is perhaps no, no other portion of Scripture is the answer to the evil that we find in the world around us. We live in a, in a very difficult world. F. Scott Peck starts, uh, starts his uh, book, uh, A Road Less Traveled, with three words, very terse sentence, life is difficult, he says. And uh, we all recognize that that's true. How, how do you account for the fact that, that there are wives out there that are being battered physically and emotionally, sexually abused every day? How can we account the, for the fact that, that little human beings are being killed day after day after day for money? Uh, what, what's the answer to the sum total of evil in the world around us? How do we reckon with it? How do we deal with it? How do we face it without giving away to rage, and fury, and frustration? Well, this is a psalm to help us with that, that issue, Psalm 52. Uh, the titles of these psalms go way back, back even prior to the Septuagint, the uh, 2nd century B.C. Greek translations of the scriptures, and we believe that uh, they're quite accurate. The title of, uh, of this psalm is uh, as follows. The, for the director of music, that's uh, Bill Herman down here, this is for him. <laughs> A masculine of David. When Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. The psalm is called a maskeel. It's a noun form of the Hebrew word sakel that we talked about a few weeks ago when we were reading uh, 1 Samuel 18. Several times in that chapter, the author says David was successful. He was profitable at what he did. And that's, that's the verb. This is the noun form of that verb. The verb means to live successfully. A masculine, which is the noun form, suggests a, a poem that teaches us how to live successfully. It makes us street smart, wises us up about life, teaches us how to make our way through life without stepping on man, landmines, how to deal with, with the hard stuff of, of life and live successfully. These are insights for successful living, to steal someone else's uh, title. This is a psalm, a psalm to make us, make us wise about life. Uh, then we're given the historical situation for which the psalm sprang. It's when uh, Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Now you studied those, uh, that story last week for Samuel 21. 
David was on the run, fleeing from Saul's insane rage. He had a handful of uh, followers. They made their way under cover of darkness one Friday evening or late one Saturday morning, the morning of the Sabbath, uh, to Nob, a little city about five miles south of, uh, south of Gibeah, which was uh, Saul's stronghold, too close for comfort. David was trying to make his way to Philistia, unarmed, hungry, desperate, cold, tired, fearful. Stumbled into uh, the sanctuary to Ahimelech, his old friend and spiritual advisor, the high priest there, and begged food and a weapon. Ahimelech was suspicious because he knew that there was dissension between David and uh, Saul. But David allayed his suspicion by, uh, well, by lying. Just told a big lie. Said I'm on the king's business. I'm in a hurry. Need a sword. Need some food. So Ahimelech fed him from the priest's food. The loaves had been taken off of the table of showbread. Hot bread had been placed on the table. And the, uh, the, the loaves that were taken away were the priest's food. So he fed David. It's a little handful of renegades. Gave him Saul's sword, or Goliath's sword, and Saul vamoosed, or Paul, uh, David vamoosed to the south. We'll pick up the story again next week when he uh, goes to Gath, city of Gath. But as David was leaving the sanctuary, he saw the dark face of Doeg, one of Saul's flunkies, and he knew he was in trouble. Whoa. Sound effects here for the- He knew he was in trouble. He knew that that Doeg would report his whereabouts. Sure enough, he did. Doeg hightailed it back to Gibeon. Saul was holding court under a tamarisk tree near near the city of Gibeon, surrounded by his counselors, and Saul was crying the blues. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Nobody is my friend. And Who can I trust? And Doeg says, trust me, trust me. I just saw David down at Nob, and I saw Ahimelech give him provisions and a sword. Just conveniently overlooking the fact that Ahimelech didn't know what was up. So Saul uh, orders uh, the priests, all 85 of them, to come to Gibeah. And you know the story. Chris talked about it last week. He slaughtered the priests, killed every one of them. Paul, Saul just summarily ordered their death. And they marched down to Nob and put that city under the sword, killed all the women, women and children and all the animals, massacred the population of that, of that town. Uh, one man uh, escaped, Abiathar, the son of uh, Ahimelech, who, is the, who, who shared the high priestly functions with his father, made his way down to David. David protected him, told David the story of the massacre of his family in the city and David's heart just sunk. He said, I, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Crushing sense of guilt on David that he had caused the death of those, of those priests and their families. And then David's David's emotions switched to fury. Uh, We would be mad as well. We would be outraged. 
That one man just to enrich himself or ingratiate himself with Saul was responsible for this terrible atrocity. Jewish tradition states that Doeg was a very wealthy, powerful man. He was uh, started out as Saul's mule skinner, and then he worked his way into Saul's court, finally rising to a position of power. He would do anything to make a buck. He would do anything to gain power, and he was willing to. He was willing to uh, put to death uh, the whole priestly community in order to feather his own his own nest. And David was just outraged. How can God do this? How can he permit this sort of thing to go on? Unarmed, innocent priests and their families, little children. How can God do this? He was outraged. And then there was a moment of truth. And he sat down and, and he wrote this, uh, this psalm. And I, I just want to commend this psalm to you for a lot of meditation. Brood over this psalm because it is... Without question, the answer to the, the problem of evil in our, in our world. The key to the psalm is the opening question and the assertion that follows. Now I'm going to retranslate the, the first verse because the NIV, uh, they transpose a couple of Hebrew words because they, they think they think there was a mistake in the text for myself. I think we, we have to take the text as it stands. It makes perfectly good sense. I think the reason it's hard to understand is that David was not calmly sitting down writing a bit of poetry or prose. David was outraged. And uh, the first line of the poem uh, uh, registers uh, well uh, up on the uh, Richter scale. He was furious. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? And then he remembered the forgotten factor. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That was a safety net. The world's not running amok. God is in control. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. David does not use the normal word for love here. He uses a word that's used all over the ancient Near Eastern world for a a love that derives not from duty but from deep compassion and mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I, I think probably that old word that's, uh, that's used in the authorized version, the King James at this point, is the best of all meanings. The loving kindness of the Lord endures forever. The rest of the poem simply fills out the theme. first part deals with Doag and his dirty tricks, verses 1 through 4. The second part deals with Doeg's, what I call Doeg's undoing, verses 5 through uh, 7. And the final stanza, verses 8 and 9, has to do with David and his insight into the love and the power of God. This is a psalm that helps us to uh, deal with the evil that men and women do. What do we think about those that molest little children? What do we think about those that deal drugs to young men and women and destroy fine young bodies and minds? Well, this is the psalm that helps us to deal with those issues and keeps us from becoming eccentric and cause-centered so that we, we miss the mainstream of, of God's uh, purposes for us.
Now David begins in verse 1 with, uh, with Doak's uh, dirty tricks. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? The love of God endures forever. There's that breakthrough moment. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You who practice deceit, you love evil rather than good. You love falsehood rather than speaking the truth. Selah. Uh, as far as we know, that's a musical notation, but I, I like to translate it. Mm-mm. Think of that. <laughs> There's a little musical interlude, and you had a chance to reflect on, uh, on what David had just said. You love every harmful word, oh, you deceitful tongue. David's opening words are caustic and contemptuous. Doag, he says, you know, just incredible sarcasm. You mighty man. Uses the Hebrew word for hero or champion. Mighty warrior. Big deal, he says. Killing unarmed clergymen. Children, little children. Dogs, cats, chickens. What a hero you are. He says, what a champion. Pin a medal on this man. You know, I think of the 200-pound man that slaps his 130-pound wife around and goes down to the bar and breaks to all his fellow bar flies. My old lady sassed me, and I, I busted her one, and I showed her. Big deal. What a man. How courageous you are. His, his words just drip with sarcasm. What a hero you are. To kill uh, innocent priests, little children, women. Uh, Doag's tongue is his principal weapon, plotted the downfall of of others. The word translation, uh, translated destruction here means to fall, to fall down. He uh, plotted this, uh, this massacre. His tongue was like a sharp razor, a lethal weapon. But uh, his tongue was driven by a deeper darkness. You love evil, he says. You love falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word. His, his mouth was driven by his heart. You see that? All of Scripture declares that, that that's so. The tongue simply manifests what's in the heart. As Jesus put it, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. I go to my doctor and he says, stick out your tongue. He grabs that thing and he looks at it, gazes at the fuzz on it, and he says, man, you are sick. That's what this passage is talking about. Let me see what kind of person you are. Stick out your tongue. Because the words that come out of our mouth simply reflect what we are. And what David is saying about this man is that he is rotten to the bone. Now, there are very few really evil people in the world, but they're out there. F. Scott Peck talks about them in one of his books. Uh, evil, he says, is the op spelled backwards, is, is live. And these are the people that are, that are deadly. He says, they're out there. 
These are the people who will do anything to make money, who are driven by a lust for power, position, wealth. They don't care who they step on on their way to uh, self-aggrandizement. And uh, Doeg was, was one of those whose heart loves evil. People like that ought to outrage us. Something wrong with us if we don't get furious when we see men and women uh, harming others for the sake of personal gain. You see, that's why uh, that's why Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. I've never liked that Christmas carol that goes, "Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild." Jesus was uh, meek; he was non-defensive, but he was not mild. He was not a mild man. And when he walked into the temple that day and he saw that there were men and women in those courts that were keeping people away from God for the sake of money, he was outraged. And we ought to be. There's something wrong with our hearts if we're not. We need to look in God's face at a time like that and and see the tears on his face and the outrage on, on his face. He is not a gentle giant. God is outraged as well. But the question is, what do, what do we do with our anger? Where do we direct it? Because misdirected anger can be terribly destructive. To what purpose do we put it? Well, David moves on to, to what I call Doeg's undoing in verses 5 through 7. God on his part will bring you down to everlasting ruin. See those words? Not just ruin, but everlasting ruin. Eternal ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent. He will root you up from the land of the living. Not me. The prophet tells us that God tramples the winepress of his wrath alone. It's not my place to seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay but he does repay. The righteous will see in fear. They will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, who trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. He, David's words just tumble out of his heart onto the page. He will bring you down. He will snatch you up. He will tear you away. He will root you up, he says. He will root you from the land of the living. In other words, you will be dead one of these days. As Mr. Natural Straight Man uh, puts it, where will it end, Mr. Natural? In the grave, my boy. In the grave. And after death, there's judgment. Everybody on this earth has to face God at the end of their life. Oh, they may get away with a lot. They they may make their way through life doing cruel, atrocious things to people and seem to be getting away with it. But in the end, they're going to stand before God. And then what will they do? The mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small, yet with 
Patience he stands waiting with exactness, grinds he all. A number of years ago, it was my privilege to spend a couple of days in the British Museum, and I was in hog heaven. I just wandered around and looked at the displays and asked questions and got a chance to talk to the curator there, and I just, boy, I, I didn't want to leave that place. I wandered into the Egyptian section of the British Museum. I looked down at the glass case there, and there in front of my eyes was Ramses II, his body, his mummified body, just a little guy about this long, kind of a big nose had bad teeth. I remember looking at him and thinking, this is the guy that tyrannized the world? This was the most powerful king, king of, that, of that era. He ruled the Middle East with an iron hand. Controlled millions of people. And I looked at this little shrunken, mummified body, and I thought, this is the guy that tyrannized the world? You see, I don't know where Idi Amin is anymore, but this is what he faces if he's still alive. This is what Saddam Hussein faces. This is what Adolf Hitler faced. This is what Benito Mussolini faced. This is what the Borgias faced. All through history, every tyrant has had to stand in the presence of God and his judgment. You see, no, no, no one gets away with evil. No one does. God is sovereign. He's in control. Oh, he, he's not trying to run the world exactly right right now. He, he's letting men and women go their way and, and, and do their thing. But one of these days, he's going to put a stop to it. And that day for, for every one of us is the, is the day of our, our termination, our death. We, we step from this life into the presence of God and, and we experience his judgment. That's also the argument of Psalm 73. You know, Asaph was really concerned about the sum total of evil in the world, the fact that evil people seem to be getting away with it. He goes into the sanctuary, and he, he, God reveals the truth to him. He has another one of these moments of insight, and he says, Oh, yeah, though, surely you place them on slippery ground. They're on a slippery slope toward death. You cast them into ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Here they are, reigning in strength, have a stroke, that's it. It's over for them. And after that, the judgment. Ripped away, David says, from the land of the living. Snatched out of their tents, their place of security. To stand in the presence of God. On the other hand, David says, I'm like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Why? Because he'd put his roots down in God. He was a man who'd exposed his heart to God and whose heart God was transforming. See? Lived his life openly and honestly before his Lord. Wanted God to deal with his sin. Understood the concept of sacrifice. Knew that there was a lamb coming who would take away his sins and he could stand before his Lord un unashamed. I'm... I'm like an olive tree, he says, planted in the, in the house of God. That's one of those symbols which when you try to explain, you explain it away. I'm always frustrated to preach on these metaphors because you preach them away when you do that. Just envision, if you would, an olive tree. These are some of the longest lasting, longest living trees in the world. There, last time we were in Israel, someone pointed out to us olive trees in the, in the Mount of Olives. 
that date back to the time of Jesus when he knelt and wept in the Mount of Olives. They're thousands of years old. Huge, gnarly, tough things. They're unshakable. Rooted. I get the impression those roots must go hundreds of feet down into the rock of the the Mount of Olives. And and furthermore, they're, they're beautiful things. Beautiful things. So there's there's grace and there's strength and there's dignity in this in this picture. David says, in contrast to Doag, who's going to be uprooted one of these days, I'm like one of these olive trees that cannot be uprooted. No one can tamper with me. I'm rooted in the house of God. And uh, I'm safe and secure from all alarms. Not shaken by the evil that's going on around me. And then I just have a moment, but I just want to touch on the two things, what I call the two parameters, two fixed reference points into which David put his roots. Uh, The first is in the second line of verse 8. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. There's our word again, loving kindness, same word that you find in in verse 1. I know that God loves me. God is love. That's his character. And secondly, I praise you forever and ever. And here I, here I want to try to trans, retranslate into the sense of the Hebrew phrase. I praise you forever and ever because you do things. You work. And those are the two parameters. Not perimeters, parameters. Fixed reference points around which we can orient our lives. God loves us. He's a God of love. And God's in control. Nothing is out of control. You look into the face of God and you don't see worry lines there. You see weeping. But you don't see worrying. He's not pacing the floor, biting his fingernails. The sea which surrounds his throne, according to the book of Revelation, is a sea of glass. There are no waves, no storms there. He's in control. He himself is not implicated in any way by the evil that's in the world. Here's the mystery that I cannot explain. He is not evil, nor is he implicated by evil and, uh, with evil in any way. But nevertheless, he takes the responsibility for all the evil in the world. He's big enough to do that. He said to Satan... After Satan had touched Job's family and his, his life, his livelihood, his body, done all those terrible things Satan did, God said to Satan, you moved me against my servant Job. He took the responsibility for that. He's big enough. His shoulders are broad enough to do that. He's in control. He's in control. I find when people look at the sum total of evil in the world, they're inclined to to let go of one or the other of those two parameters. Either they let go of the goodness of God or they let go of his sovereignty. Some say, well, he just isn't good, like uh, Herman Melville. He's like a watch. He has a mind like a watch. No heart. Doesn't care. Not touched by the feelings of our infirmity, by our pain. Doesn't matter to him. Up there running the world, totally indifferent to what's going on. That's not what David says. 
I don't fully understand or comprehend how the love of God works in this God-awful world of ours, but I know on the basis of Scripture that He loves us. And when I look at the cross, I cannot believe anything else but that He loves us. He is love. He has no other motivation. So I can't let go of that, uh, that truth. Uh, the other truth is that he's in control. He's in control. Uh, the, the world's not spinning out of, out of control. Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote his book, When Good Things Happen to, or Bad Things Happen to Good People. You know, millions read that book and found solace from it. But what he did is let go of the idea of God's control. What he said is, you know, he, I understand his pain. His little boy died of progeria, early, early aging. A terrible, terrible thing. I can't imagine what anguish that man and his family, his wife, went through. But he came to the conclusion that, that God can't handle the chaos in this world. He loves us, but he can't do anything about the total, of, you know, the, the mass of evil that's in this world. The world's out of control. Elie Weissel, the Jewish theologian who's a friend of Kushner's and whose faith went up the chimneys and at Auschwitz, said, listen, if that's who God is, why didn't he resign and let somebody competent take control? And I, I feel the same way. If God only loves us and if he can't control the, the awfulness of this world, then I, think, I think he ought to resign. He ought to retire. Let somebody else take over who can control this world. But see, David doesn't look at it that way. David holds both of those truths in tension all the time. God loves us, and God is in control. Now, I don't understand why he doesn't do something about the evil in the world. Right now, he, he's not. But someday he will. But you see, it's that understanding of the character of God that enables me to engage myself in the world without being blown away by the evil in it. I think some of you, uh, you know, and we're, we're prone to confuse people, but I think some of you were, were confused about the political statement that we issued. We were not saying, don't be engaged in the world. We were not saying that we ought to do something in order to maintain law and order and justice in our world. And we were not saying, don't, don't get involved in the political process. What we're saying is that we feel that our job here as a church is to instruct you about the spiritual underpinnings that enable you to go out and do something about our, about our world. We're not going to direct you in the way you should go. That's between you and God. But we are going to talk to you about the fundamentals that keep you stable. And one of the fundamentals is this great truth that God is loving and kind and merciful and good. And, and at the same time, he's in control. And that's what keeps us from losing control when we go out there and, and try to engage the world face to face. We don't give way to fear. We don't act out of our frustration. We don't let our anger turn into, into personal outrage that we direct toward others. We can be forceful, but we can be calm. And we can be, be concerned about the souls of the people that we deal with. Because, again, the main thing, and you know, we've got to keep the main thing, the main thing, is to know God and to make him known. That's the main thing. And anything else we do is ancillary. But understanding this truth is what keeps us stable and strong in the face of a world that's going to hell in a handbasket. That's what, what makes us like an olive tree that's rooted in the house of, 
house of God. People say, don't you know, the world is going to rack and ruin. We've got to get out there and do something. We've got to do it now. Why don't you get involved? And I say, yeah, we, we, we do need to do something about it. But before we go out there to, to face into the world, we need to take a good look into God's face. And see, he's weeping, but he is not worried. He's not worried. He is concerned. Breaks his heart to see what's happening. The ugliness. The terrible stuff that's going on in our world. It breaks his heart. But he's still in control. The world's not running away from God. He knows what he's doing. God is working out his purpose in spite of all that happens here. Lawless nations in commotion, restless like a storm-tossed ocean. He controls their rage and fury, so his children need not fear. Let our hearts then turn to heaven, where Christ bides his time in peace, giving him our heart's devotion. Till the present troubles cease. Let's pray. Lord, we um, look away from our world into your face and we see goodness written all over it. And we see your power and your strength. You are not fearful. You are not frustrated. You are not at loose ends. You know exactly what you're doing. Enable us, Lord, to hang to those hang on to those two truths and then, as David would say, to wait for you. Because your name is good. To wait. And that may mean that we will have to wait and wait and wait and wait. But we know that the future is secure because you hold it firmly in your hands. You already know the outcome of history. You have determined it. And we rest in that solid foundation of truth. Amen.